we'll go ahead and grab a Bible and you can open up into Hebrews 1. We're going to start our series outside the camp. Hebrews chapter 1 is where we'll be. We're going to look at just the first uh, few verses tonight. I'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll pray. These are the words of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Our Father in God, is with, it is with great joy and anticipation that we gather this evening. We are not uh, only ready for a new year, Underneath the sovereign guidance of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also um, eager to hear from your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds so that in the hearing of this word, Holy Spirit, um, we would be stirred to the point of action. Help us to labor for your glory in the here and now. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. It is indeed a new year tonight at midnight. And while sometimes uh, our gauge and experience of time can be incredibly monotonous, we would do well to recall that even this next year is already in the mind of God. The year will be 2018, and the reason it's not the year 5000 or even the year 15 is because it is 2018 AD, the year of our Lord. Because time itself is subject to the sovereignty of God, we understand that the whole calendar system is centered on Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that Jesus was born probably in 4 or 5 B.C., someone miscalculated just a touch, um, we know that our years are marked out because of the coming of Jesus Christ. Um, history is his story. We will come back to this issue of time in, in a little bit. One of the things we here at Cross and Crown believe and preach and hold close to the chest is the fact that it is our job to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And so we are, one, we are to help equip people to do this. That's our aim. So whenever we encounter people or um, when people find out what we're doing, that's one of the key things. We want to help do the equipping help make disciples, to, to teach people how to press these crown rights into, into everything. And so we have to help people do that. Two, we have to actually, um, we have to kind of just do this ourselves, so we can't forget that aspect of it. And three, we have to recruit others to do the same. Discipleship looks less like pietistic navel-gazing and more like kingdom work each and every day which means if we're going to take the land, and remember that's what Jesus has commissioned us to do, then we must do so underneath the sovereign hand of God. We must do it underneath his sovereignty. So we are not anarchists who have no rule book 
and nor are we communists who make up the rules as we go along. We are Christians, and we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it turns out, in our following of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has tasked us with doing something about it. We aren't to follow Jesus Christ in our hearts and only in our hearts. We are to follow him with our head, our heart, and our hands. Now, I say all of that to just kind of set the stage um, for where we're going to go with the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend the next 32 weeks or so um, looking at this book. And the reason that we're going to look at this book is because Hebrews, and this is why we're doing this right at the, you know, the outset of our, our, um, our little mission here. The reason we're doing it is because Hebrews is a book of victory. Hebrews is a book of victory. So we are, we are told to take the land, to, to occupy everything on this planet by doing everything that we do for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. In other words, that's what disciple-making of nations looks like. So Hebrews is a book that commands us to obedience. Um, it gives us the sovereignty of God. It holds up the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it pushes us into the world with the resounding message that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is our confession. That is an early Christian confession. Jesus is Lord, meaning Caesar is not, right? Jesus is Lord. So, in order for you to understand, I guess, really why I'm, why I'm saying those things, um, I want to I give you a, a quick overview of the entire book. Not, not explaining, obviously, all the ins and outs, um, but helping you get this 30,000-foot view. To start, you should know that Hebrews was written prior to A.D. 70. Hebrews was written prior to A.D. 70. Um, in the year 70 A.D., uh, if you recall, the Romans, underneath the leadership of Titus, um, they put an end to the Jewish-Roman war by completely and utterly destroying Jerusalem and devastating her temple. So A.D. 70 marked the end of the Judaic Aeon. A.D. 70 marked the end of the Judaic Aeon. And this was a fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse given by Jesus, uh, if you recall, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Um, quickly, context there. Jesus uh, warned his disciples about things that were going to unfold within that generation. Um, Jesus had already, in the previous chapter, in Matthew 23, um, had a tongue-lashing experience with the religious leaders. Um, so he had been kind of already warning that if they didn't repent, they would be judged. If repentance wasn't happening, it wasn't going to happen, then Jerusalem uh, would, be, would be leveled, would be crushed. The temple would be destroyed within a generation. And sure enough, since Jesus isn't a false prophet, his prophecy came true. Forty years after his death and resurrection, the temple was raised and the city was burnt to the ground. Now, that's not a small event. That's not, you know, just something that is irrelevant to the grand scheme of things. That is a significant event for understanding scripture, for understanding even Jesus himself. The period between Jesus' death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem was the last days, um, and that's what Hebrews um, 1 verse 2 is talking about. Remember, Hebrews was written during that time period, right up before um, the temple was destroyed. The book itself is a letter 
or more accurately, it's a sermon delivered to a congregation, probably a group of congregations, probably a group of house churches, um, not unlike what we're, what we're doing here. Um, and it was urging them not to return to the temple cultus. That's the point of Hebrews, really, in a, in, a, in a nutshell. Don't go back to the temple cultus. Don't go back to how things were done. They were told not to go back to the temple system. Don't go back to the, how things were done, the, the temple worship. All of those things were the shadows. Jesus is here. Don't go backwards. Get in, get in with Jesus. So there was a, a great temptation for Jewish Christians to, to go back to that form, to go back to the physical temple. Um, which was represented in the old covenant system. So instead of trusting Jesus Christ and his, his permanent once-for-all sacrifice, there were many that were tempted during this time period, during these 40 years, there were many that were tempted to leave this gospel and embrace a false gospel. In fact, Paul himself uh, condemns this thinking quite heavily in the book of Galatians. At any rate, Hebrews beckons the true people of God to embrace the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ, to, to refuse to shrink back and instead press on. But why would the writer, presumably the Apostle Paul, but we're truthfully not entirely certain on that, why would the writer, why would the writer care to exhort us in this manner? Now I want to read to you um, Hebrews 13.22, that's at the end of the book, because I want you to see why this author is, is doing what he's doing. So I'll just read it and you can listen. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Bear with my word of exhortation. Now I suppose our, our definitions of briefly don't quite line up. Thirteen chapters and the writer tells us at the end, I've written to you briefly. Like, you know, Jude is brief, not... Not 13 chapters, but that's a different discussion. Anyhow, the writer says, bear with my word of exhortation. So that's the point from the writer's, writer's view. That's what he's getting at. He's sending a letter, he's sending this sermon, and it's supposed to be understood as an exhortation. It's a teaching. Now, that's what an exhortation is. An exhortation is a teaching. It's a word of admonishment. The purpose of an exhortation is to give strength, to impart wisdom and knowledge, and that's meant to stir us to action. So that, that's really what an exhortation is. And so the question is, when you're reading the Bible, you, know, you need to be asking these types of questions. Why is this admonishment done in this way? Why would, why would he give an exhortation like this? Now, Hebrews is clearly not like any other letter in the New Testament. It's entirely unique. And so you've got to ask that question, why write it this way? Um, one theologian has made something plain. Hebrews is the book of Deuteronomy. Hebrews is the book of Deuteronomy. Let me explain. The structure of Deuteronomy, remember go all the way back to the Pentateuch, to the books of Moses. The structure of Deuteronomy lines up perfectly with Hebrews, and the book is basically organized in the same way as the ancient uh, suzerain vassal treaties that were ratified um, back in, in the ancient Near East. There's, there's a preamble, there's a historical prologue, there are general and, and specific stipulations of the agreement of the relationship, um, there are divine witnesses that are called, remember that in Hebrews 11, uh, the witnesses there, 
Um, and finally, there are blessings and curses that make up basically the fifth portion of the historical, um, these covenantal documents. So, so structurally, just think of the book as a whole. Structurally, the book of Hebrews is laid out exactly like Deuteronomy, and that's obviously not coincidence. As it pertains to the content of the book, Hebrews is a book saturated, saturated with direct quotations from the Old Testament and several allusions and references. One cannot understand the book of Hebrews without understanding the Old Testament. That's partly why we don't understand the New Testament, is because we don't understand the Old. There's a constant reference in Hebrews to types and anti-types, uh, uh, demonstrating how Jesus, for example, Jesus fulfills you know, Moses. Jesus is the, the new Moses figure. Um, how the church, the church of Jesus Christ, um, fulfills the assembly of Israel. So the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament are, there's continuity there. Um, those are just a couple of, exa of examples, and we'll see more as we go. There are quotations all over the place, especially in chapter 1, from the book of Psalms. There are quotations from the book of Deuteronomy. Interestingly enough, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but at the end of Deuteronomy, God promises not to leave or forsake Israel. Well, there's an exhortation at the very end of Hebrews for the same exact thing. In fact, Jesus said as much in the Great Commission that he would never leave us or forsake us, that he would always be with us. So there are quotes from Psalms, Deuteronomy, and even the prophet Jeremiah. So basically, Hebrews is an exegetical commentary and sermon on the Old Testament. One of the main reasons um, for Hebrews being the book of Deuteronomy is because of the fact that Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Um, that is... That is the, the bold imprint, underlined, italicized, all the arrows are pointing to this huge reality that Jesus is the greater Joshua. So that sits it kind of in a historical context. Before, uh, before Israel invaded Canaan and entered the promised land, remember something key. Before they invaded Canaan, the promised land, Israel spent how many years in the wilderness? Any of the kids know? How many years in the wilderness did Israel spend wandering around before they went into 40, the promise? 40. Forty years, that's it. Forty years. Now, ch check this out. That's no small thing. Before the church of Jesus Christ invaded the world and entered this new promised land, the entire world, she spent 40 years in a similar wilderness. So you can see that. We'll get to that in chapters 3 and 4. There's clearly a parallel in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. So the point is, Hebrews is an expl um, explication of the law of Christ, and it serves as the rallying cry before the invasion of the world. That's what Hebrews is. I'll say it again. Hebrews is an explication of the law of Christ. So everything's centered on Jesus now. Everything from the Old Testament forward focuses on Jesus and then continues to move forward. And Hebrews also serves as the rallying cry before the invasion of the world. That's the point of the book. That's what Hebrews is um, going to teach us. It's going to give us doctrine, but doctrine is never for the sake of doctrine. Doctrine is for the sake of dominion in the world. So it starts there and then it moves forward. It, basically, it's the pep talk before battle. 
And so, as I mentioned, at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31.6, God would never leave Israel and would never forsake her. Hebrews 13.5, the same thing is said yet again. So we are on the precipice of dominion, the, the invasion of the world. That's where the early church was during the time of this writing. So, to sort of sum it up, Hebrews, again, is structured the same as Deuteronomy. Uh, it quotes several times from the end of Deuteron Deuteronomy, especially chapters 31 and on, uh, 30 and 31 and so on. It also shows us that the church, um, the church in the 40 years between the death of Christ and the end of the Judaic Aeon in AD 70 is the same, it's the same situation as Israel, who was in the wilderness 40 years before the invasion of Canaan. And lastly, Hebrews, Deuteronomy, the themes are interspersed, they're the same. So that's why we can make the comparison. So the, the point of Deuteronomy and Hebrews is, is the exact same. We are, we are called, and that means you too, kids, we are called to be courageous people. We're to be courageous. We are to be rooted in the law of Christ, the law word of God. We are to be people who know something about history, who know something about the promises of God, and who are eager to advance the kingdom of God in the world through the proclamation of the gospel. So that's the point. So Hebrews, Hebrews will demonstrate over and over again that the end of the Old Covenant age was, was, um, was upon those people in the first century, that A.D. 70 marked that decisive end of that era, and that after that momentous event, that the, the new covenant era is marked by the new heavens and new earth breaking into history. So that's why Paul will say things about you know the, the gospel going forward to the to the world, and he mentions in a few different places the idea that the gospel has gone to the world, the idea that this new heavens and new earth is is starting now, it's being implemented in history and so on. So if if you're following so far, great. Hebrews then, Deuteronomy, the church, you know, right before 8070, before the invasion and the spreading out into the world. So you, you might be thinking, well, where are we now then? What, what does that mean for us today? Well, we are in the book of Judges. That's where we're at. We're working in the land and we're subduing the land. We're seeing progress and regression, mm -hmm. progress and regression. And we also know that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us all the way. So let's, let's go ahead, and if you have your Bible, make sure you're, you're following along. Let's go ahead and consider our text. The letter, the sermon, starts off not with a greeting. Notice that. Paul is usually quick to give a greeting, um, saying hello to the churches and grace and peace with you. That, none of that is here. There's not a greeting, but it starts with this assertion of doctrine. To start, God spoke at the very beginning, in many times and in many ways. God brought his message of revelation through the prophets, verse 1. However, this final revelation, key in on the word final, this final revelation in these last days, you can underline that, these last days, God spoke to us by his Son, and this Son is the heir of everything, and that's because he's the creator of everything. That's verse 2. So, when you're arguing with the dispensationalist who is um, in his bunker blogging, uh, and, you know, the last days are upon us, we can sit here, not in our bunkers, but at our jobs, 
and in our living room like this and say, actually, the last days have already begun. <laughs> um, the last days have been happening for 2,000 years, actually. And this is a text you can go to and point that out. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. The, the new covenant, new heavens, new earth era is the last days. So that, you should know that. Now notice the pattern already in the first couple of verses. You have long ago verses in, in relation to these last days. You have many times, many ways versus this one final way. God, God spoke to the fathers, and now, now the other side of that is God spoke to us. Um, he spoke through the prophets. Notice that's plural. He spoke to the prophets, and now on the other side of this, he spoke to and spoke through his son, his one and only son. God's Old Testament revelation and plan of redemption has reached its telos, its final goal, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator, and he is the heir. He's the appointed heir because of his work, as we'll see later. This heir, this son, remember the son that was thrown out of the vineyard and killed, who is he? Well, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the effulgence of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, which is to say... He's the stamp and seal on the envelope that the king would put on a letter after sealing it with wax. That's what that word is getting at. Jesus is the exact imprint. He's a complete and perfect reflection of God himself because he is God. And this king, he also, notice, upholds the universe. He didn't just create, but he also upholds the entire created order by the word of his power. That's verse 3. Now we also learn in verse 3 that he made purification for sins, because he is the high priest, and we'll learn more about that later in the book. And after, after making purification, after being the perfect atonement, after his work was done, what did Jesus do? Kids, do you remember after Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he spent time with his disciples? What did he do? Think Acts chapter 1. He, he died. After he died, he rose from the dead, and remember what happened. He ascended back to the Father. Remember the disciples were looking, and the angels said, you know, why, are you, why are you looking? What are you looking at? <laughs> well, Jesus just ascended. That's what we're looking at. But what happened when Jesus ascended back to the Father? What did he do? Did he, did he, did he um, go play golf? <laughs> Remember what happened? He sat down. Remember? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. His priestly work in the temple was finished, and instead of leaving the Holy of Holies like the former priest, he stayed in there, sitting on the mercy seat because his sacrifice was infinitely sufficient. And then finally, one more observation here from verse 4, is that he's superior to angels. We'll talk more about that next week. He's much superior to angels, and now he has the name, that's the message title tonight, the name which is above all names, because he has inherited everything. So right from the beginning, we see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the prophet, priest, and king par excellence, and he holds each office together. Now, to sort of bring this all together so you can see it in the text here, what do we learn about this son? One, he is the final revelation of God himself. What do we learn about Jesus? He's the final revelation. Revelation, in these last days, there's finality. 
is the final revelation of God himself. Two, he is the divine logos, the, the logos of God. He's the speech of God. Notice the text. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us. And interesting kind of a play on words. Um, think of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos. He's the speech of God. Jesus is, um, the, the Father is the infinite speaker. Jesus is the means of that speaking. He's the speech. Three, what we learn about the Son also is that he's the creator. He's the creator. When the Father spoke, that speaking was Jesus Christ himself. He's the creator. Number four, he is the heir of all things, meaning that he has inherited all of creation. So an inheritance was given to him. Um, an inheritance is something that's passed down to you um, by your parents and even their parents and so on, whether that's you know money or property or things like that. Jesus himself has inherited everything. So the chair you're sitting on belongs to Jesus, right? Five, he's the radiant light that puts God's infinite glory on display. He's the radiant light that puts God's infinite glory on display. How many of you kids have been outside? It's a sunny day. Think about it. And you're playing, and there's trees. And you ever see, like, the light kind of shining through the trees? And maybe you see the dust particles inside the light, right? That's the sun shining through, right? So the Father is the sun. The light that's coming is Jesus Christ. S-U-N versus S-O-N. <laughs> um, number six. We also know about the Son from this text, that he's the same nature and substance as God, because he is God. We recited the Nicene Creed earlier. Um, Jesus is the same substance as God. That was a big debate in, in the 4th century. Is Jesus another God, or is he just a man, or is he the same as the Father? Um, he is the exact same. He is God. Number seven, he sustains his creation by virtue of him being the speech of God who speaks the word, and it is good. Remember in the, in the creation story, God spoke. He said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. That's the work of Jesus Christ in action. Eight, he is the perfect atonement from God who takes away sins permanently. There's the issue of finality again. He made purification for sins. He is the perfect atonement from God who can take away sins permanently. <clears throat> Nine, he is the king of creation because God has seated him at the right hand of the Father. Four verses, and we've already learned ten things about who this Jesus is. It's amazing. There's so much theology packed in in such a small place. He is the king of creation because God has seated him at the right hand of the Father. And number ten, he has the name. He has the the name, the name of all names. So that's the passage before us, and I want to tease out these themes some more. Because of the nature of this book, and because how it is a replication of Deuteronomy, we have to take seriously how this book begins. The assertion of Christ's divine offices on the front end of this call to battle must not be underestimated. The assertion of Christ's divine offices on the front end of this call to battle, this letter, must not be underestimated. 
The supremacy of Christ in all things and over all things is the foundation for everything that follows. It's the foundation for everything that follows. It's the foundation for all call, our call to persevere. It's the foundation for our call to take the land. It's the foundation for, for how it is we see the new heavens and new earth unfold in history. So if I were to ask you, what's the foundation of your marriage? What's the foundation, kids, of your relationship with your parents, with each other? What is the foundation? That's it. Jesus. It's his supremacy. Supremacy is just a big word that we use to describe that he is supreme. He's the most important. He's the highest authority. That is our Lord. So the Lordship of Christ serves as the beachhead for God's historical plan of redeeming all of creation. The reason that this exhortation is at the beginning of this book is because the entire focus of our plundering of the world, that's Canaan, right, is Christ's person. Our most powerful weapon is not a what, it is a who. Mm -hmm. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So our preaching of the gospel of the kingdom must have as its main subject the lordship of Christ. We're not trying to um, go around town and ask that people would vote for Jesus so we could get him elected. We're not trying to get people to buy into his pyramid scheme. We are declaring, like the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus has the name. He has the name. No angel has it. No priest in the temple has it. No mere, mere mortal, no pastor, no elder, no one, but Jesus has the name. Jesus is the name, and because of it, the nations must be subdued. Jesus is the name, and because of it, we must be about his kingdom in all things. Now, in a time when the average ostensible evangelical Christian would much rather hunker down and wait for the rapture of the church, we must be diligent in remembering that the cross and empty tomb was the victory. The cross and the empty tomb was the victory. We have to stop acting like the tomb is still occupied. We have to stop treating this whole gospel message of the kingdom that we like to proclaim as if Jesus is still in there, as if we're, you know, like the disciples, hiding, waiting, uncertain. No, no, no. The tomb is empty. That's the victory. The cross of Jesus was the death of death. And the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of new life. We, we're not waiting for Jesus to become king. And we certainly aren't waiting for things to worsen. We are now in the phase of the implementation of Christ's victory. So that there are two eras of history. So simple to remember. There are two eras of history. Preparation for Christ's victory. That's first phase. Second phase is the preparation or the implementation of Christ's victory. You have preparation and implementation. Those are the two eras of history. And in case it's not clear, we're in the latter. We are in the implementation of Christ's victory. That's what we're doing. Remember, the age of the Old Covenant ended in AD 70. The beginning of the New Covenant age began on Easter. Hebrews, Hebrews was written in the in-between during this overlap, and, and it was written to remind Christian that in, Christians that in this overlap of the ages... Jesus Christ is Lord, and our task is to go forth. Our task is this implementation of that lordship. So, so kids, listen. We must come to understand and know and believe and faithfully trust the centrality and supremacy of Christ in everything before we implement his kingdom rule. 
You cannot have a godly family without the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ. You cannot have a church without the centrality and supremacy of Christ. You have to have this. Look at the progression here in the text. So Jesus came in verse 2 as the final revelation of God. He was appointed as heir because he's creator. That's verse 2. Because of who he is, namely God in the flesh, he made purification uh, and atonement as the atonement of God in order to, to then sit at the right hand of, of God as king and lord. If, if there is a more damning text in scripture against the false teaching of premillennialism, I don't know where it is. This text completely undermines all of the pessimillennialist views of eschatology, whether it's amillennialism or premillennialism. This text undermines it. He is Lord over heaven and earth. He is king of our hearts and Congress. Everything is upheld by his power. And because he has the name, because he is the supreme one, everyone and everything is called to submit to him today. Right now, not later, but today. The reason Christ's sacrifice is so potent, so thorough, is because of who this God-man is. Why is it? Because you, you might share the, the gospel with somebody. You might talk about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He died for you. Well, people die all the time. I mean, that, that happens. Why is Jesus any different? Why is he special? Well, it's because of who he is. He isn't, he isn't just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He is the prophet. Amen. He isn't just another priest in a long line of priests. He is the high priest. He isn't just another king in a long line of kings. He is the king. So what better truth is there to soothe the burdened soul? What better salve is there out there to heal the sickened heart? How is it How is it that Christians, in, in the midst of the neuronic persecution, put yourself in the first century? Nero is persecuting the church. You're on the run. How is it that Christians, in the midst of that, could find hope that God was with them, that, with them, that, that God does care for them, and this persecution, the burning of Christians and the feeding of them to the lions in the Colosseum, how is it that the, all of that would serve to advance the kingdom of God in the world? Well, it's very simple. Because of Jesus. Because of who he is. Only God in Christ can bring victory out of what looks like defeat. How can it be that we here today, who are called to implement this victory in history can find hope that despite the growing problem of humanism and statism, how can we see the kingdom of God grow on earth as it is in heaven? How is it even possible? Because the majority of Christians in this country expect defeat, and that's why we're getting it. How can we see hope? How can we, how can we take the scripture, scriptural truths that you know, Jesus is supreme, he's at the right hand of God, he's orchestrating all things for him, for God's glory. He, he intends for the Great Commission to be successful. How can we even have hope? Well, it's very, very simple. Because Jesus is Lord. Listen, the dominion promised in the garden, though lost because of Adam, was regained in Christ. The dominion that was promised in the garden, though lost in Adam, was regained in Christ. Everything from Genesis 1, verse 1, to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, is preparation for God's dominion in Christ. 
The whole Old Testament, the Old Covenant, all of that was preparation in God's sovereignly orchestration of history, getting us to the point where Christ would be Lord. And now here we are. We are Christians, right? We have gathered for that reason. We are renewed in this second Adam, and we're tasked with the same task of dominion, and our job now is to implement the victory that was already achieved. So we don't, we don't have to, we're not, we're not selling a faulty product. We're not, you know, trying to go door to door, and we have this great product, and, and the warranty's incredible. Well, you need the warranty because the product's not that great. Right, so we're trying to trying to you know Ponzi scheme our way into this whole thing. We don't have to do that. It's already achieved. It's already done. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried. He was dead, but He was raised on the third day. He's victorious. Hebrews one, right here in your text. Hebrews one verses one through four, and even the verses that follow, gives this gospel proclamation a backbone. It gives us a backbone. We don't have a message with zero doctrine behind it. We have a message with a ton of doctrine behind it. Because Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God who was revealed to us 2,000 years ago, we need to come to understand something important. We have what we need. We have what we need. We have it. We're, we're not still wandering around in the wilderness. The church, listen, <laughs> The church is not an exile. Amen. The church is not an exile. We don't, we don't need manna in the wilderness. We have the bread of life. We have what we need. We have Jesus Christ. We have his law word. We, we, should never be find, we should never find ourselves in the position of waiting for something else to come. We don't need anything else. We have it. We have the empty tomb. We have the Lordship of Christ. So yes, we, we await Christ's um, his consummative coming. But what the church needs more than anything right now is a correct understanding of the Lordship of Christ. We already have received this kingdom, this new social order of heaven that cannot be shaken and cannot be removed. We're not waiting for it. It's here. We simply cannot defect back to the temple system because Christ himself was put outside the camp and and we cannot defect to the humanism we see all around us. Outside the camp. We must be outside all these false systems under the Lordship of Christ so that we can find ourselves in a position of victory in this world in here and now. So the principle of finality here in Hebrews 1 is absolutely earth-shattering. It's earth-shattering. The principle of finality. Think about it. If Israel decided to back out of its conquest of Canaan, they wouldn't have had a promised land, would they? they you know, remember Moses, um, well, Moses dies in the mountain, God kills him. That's a different story. <laughs> he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. And they're, out, they're standing there with Joshua leading the way. And you know what, guys? Let's go back. Let's go back to the wilderness. You know, let's go back to Egypt. It was better there, right? What if they had never done that? Well, they wouldn't have a promised land. In the same way, if Christians decide to back out of their calling to victorious living in every area of life, because of the gospel, there will be no discipling of the nations. If we have the gospel, and we do, and we look at it and say, you know what, it's not enough, it's not sufficient, 
There's no way we can use this. It's just not the right tool for the job. If we look at it and think in those terms, guess what? The discipling of the nations won't happen. And guess what else happens? God will take another generation further down, and he'll do it himself that way. And unfortunately, that's what the modern church has done today. We've retreated to our ghettos. We've given our, our children to Caesar. We've asked God to bless our impotence. And we wonder why we don't see the blessing. Listen, do not settle for a superficial, undemanding commitment to the work of Christ in the world. Don't settle for it. Don't settle for what passes as normative in modern Christianity today. This superficial, arbitrary, non-demanding, Jesus just you know wants you to sit in the corner and think about him and do nothing with your hands. Don't settle for that. Don't settle for the pietistic, unmoving religion of ineffectiveness. Do not settle for what passes for Christianity today. The key, the key to our implementation of Christ's victory in history is the objective reality that Christ has come, he has forgiven us our sins, and he has been seated. He has come, he has forgiven us of our sins, and he has been Seated. Notice the past tense here. The session of Christ as the prophet, priest, of king is the victory. That's the victory. And so what do we do? We must preach the gospel. We must believe it, kids. We must believe this gospel. We must proclaim this gospel. We must live in light of this gospel. And we have to see the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago as the beginning of the complete transformation of the cosmos, the entire world. So he is our intercessor in heaven right now. That's where Jesus is right now while we are here worshiping him in spirit and truth. He is our intercessor. He is the judge. He is priest. He is king. And what Hebrews shouts from the rooftops is this. Christ's work is done. We must advance and conquer. Christ's work is done. It is finished. We must go into the nations. So take heart, church. Listen, the battle is not without struggle. This battle that we are in is not without struggle, but you should also know that it's not without victory. Jesus Christ has the name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you the glory tonight. And not just tonight, each day, because you are the sovereign one. You have established the Lord Jesus as the king above all kings. And we ask of you to rise up and be jealous for your name in this nation. We have a church in disrepute and a nation who will not bend the knee. Would you, Jesus, act? Would you, King Jesus, break the enemy? Would you bring regeneration through your spirit and use us to faithfully implement your victory? We know and believe and confess without a doubt that we are helpless without you. And so we beg of you, Father, in the spirit, for the name of Christ, we beg of you to act. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Well, we have a, an opportunity to um, partake of, of the Lord's Supper together as kind of a prequel to um, tonight's fellowship afterwards. So uh, we invite you to come, church, to grab the bread, grab the wine, go back to your seat, and we will, uh, we will partake together. So come, church, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen.